I mean, really, you you can't imagine the uh, vitriol that with which some of them attacked health he- attack healthcare workers. So, so I'm pretty active on Twitter, and I will get daily abuse. Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday 16th February 2021, as the vaccine rollout continues apace and calls grow for lockdown restrictions to be lifted. We await the government's plans to be announced next week. Nearly 16 million people have been vaccinated across the UK and rates of infection are falling, but schools remain closed. Travellers from certain countries must now quarantine for 14 days or risk 10 years in prison, a move characterised by one commentator last night as too much, too late. And there is still, shockingly, no proper support for people to self-isolate if they or someone they have been in contact with tests positive. With over 29,000 people in hospital with COVID-19, pressure on hospitals and staff remains intense. With me today on the line are Nisri Nalwan, Hi, I'm Nisreen Alwan uh, from um, University of Southampton, Public Health. Partha Carr. Hi, I'm uh, Partha uh, Carr. I'm a consultant in diabetes from Portsmouth. Helen Salisbury. Hello, I'm a GP in Oxford. And our guest this week, author and palliative care specialist, Rachel Clark. Hello, I work in a hospice in Oxfordshire and also on the wards of my local acute hospital. Well, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. Um, It seems a a very important topic that we've not yet discussed in any detail about palliative care. And and I suppose my first question is, how is palliative care different in the era of COVID-19? Well, I think in a really profound sense, COVID-19 has changed everything. Uh, We, as a specialty try to deliver care that is in part hard medicine it's it's the right drugs for symptoms it's the right interventions but it's also part a presence and a relationship at the bedside that uh, helps a patient approaching the end of their life uh, feel as though they're supported they matter they're not alone and of course the one perhaps the greatest cruelty of COVID-19 is the way in which it forces barriers between individuals at the one time when we need each other the most, when we're frightened, vulnerable, and even at the end of life in that first wave, huge numbers of people died without a family member or loved one, even at the bedside. Um, So I think all of those restrictions uh, PPE, the fact that there's a mask and a visor and a gown between you and your patients, the fact that visitors are not there at the bedside except perhaps in the final days of life, all of those barriers run absolutely counter to what should be the heart of good palliative medicine. And instead of sitting close with a patient who maybe can barely speak above a whisper, you're almost having to shout through your your mask sometimes to be heard. You're picking up the phone and having to talk to a relative, a loved one who you know is isolating themselves at home and you're having to tell them through the telephone that the person they love is dying. And 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 all of those barriers are just 
horrendous in terms of trying to deliver good palliative care. But I think that that's the, the, the bad side. The good side is we learned very early on in the first wave that this was something crucial that we had to address as a matter of urgency. And so we've really tried to use every creative trick we can to surmount those barriers and still provide what's an essentially human and and compassionate presence with our patients in need. And we do that through technology, through screens, through video recordings or, or live conversations with families. We'll, we'll record messages from loved ones, we'll read out letters that they email us and we sit and read at the bedside. And uh, we, we try to, in every way possible, surmount the barriers of of the PPE um, but it's it's very it's tough and it's required I think sometimes real superhuman efforts on the part of staff and and during this pandemic staff doctors nurses other healthcare workers have found themselves I guess in that role of having to deal with 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 death and deal with breaking bad news in in extraordinary circumstances to relatives um, is part of your role also I, I expect to support staff in in the work that they're having to do absolutely and it's extraordinary to think of the inexperience of of many of the people caring for patients dying from covid um, and yet the sort of seemingly inexhaustible desire to step up and help and do what's necessary. So, for example, in the first wave, I ran some teaching with a, a cohort of medical students. So they many of them had never encountered dying in, in the flesh, as it were. And we talked via Zoom, because that was the only way we could do it, about how you handle those conversations, how do you conduct them when... You, you know that the patient in front of you can't even see your face. All they can see is a mask and a pair of eyes. Um, and we realised early on that there's only a very small number of palliative care specialists, but of course there's the huge resource of the wider NHS workforce. And so we did a lot of uh, teaching and training and upskilling to try and support every member of staff in what is incredibly difficult even in the best circumstances holding yourself in a space with a patient who's frightened and approaching the end of life um, that is something many of us tend to intrinsically want to flinch away from because it's daunting it's frightening you're worried about what if you get it wrong it's upsetting and we've tried to support staff and teach them the skills with which to have those conversations and actually look after yourself afterwards which is a, a kind of it's an easy glib phrase to trip off the tongue but it's 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 tough in practice and it needs real resources to support staff. Partha tell us your experiences of, of palliative care or, or you know what, what have you learned or over the last year? I think in general we don't deal with death very well in hospitals, you know, I think people really struggle with the concept. But the question I had for Rachel, you know, every cloud has got a silver lining, as they say. Do you think this gives the opportunity to relook 
as to how palliative care should be viewed or funded or etc. Do you think there is a better realisation? Yes, 100% Partha. And, and not only that, I think if we didn't use our experiences collectively in medicine of the, of the last year to think very fundamentally about our whole approach to end-of-life medicine, then we would be failing. It's it's we're we're very easy um, as we, we find it easy as clinicians to point fingers at someone else and say you must learn from your mistakes. Particularly politicians, you must do things differently next time. The same applies to us, and um, it would be a tragedy if we didn't use the pandemic to to think absolutely from fundamentals about how we as a society and a health and care service are delivering palliative care in the future. Um, it, it's my own strong conviction, and, and the pandemic experiences have only reinforced this, that in an ideal world, palliative care wouldn't exist as a specialty at all. I would love to uh, work myself out of a job. It wouldn't be needed because every nurse, every doctor from day one of their training would learn how to relate to death and dying of patients in a completely different way. It's simultaneously universal, the one experience all of us are guaranteed to share in our lives, and yet also an experience that's shrouded in taboo and fear and denial, as as you've said, Partha. And as clinicians, we need to model honestly and without shame or embarrassment what it's really like having an intense and personal and intimate relationship with our patient's experience of approaching the end of our life because it is difficult you can't just say we must use the d word we mustn't we mustn't use euphemisms and think that somehow that fixes everything of course it doesn't that's a that's a glib um, response to to denial of, of death. So yeah, a revolution, please, from day one of medical school. Rachel, I just wanted to go back to the families and their experience or lack of experience, because the thing that I think I found so upsetting in the first wave was this feeling that people would were dying and their relatives had no opportunity to be there, to hold their hand, to say goodbye. Um, have have we got better at this um, with the later waves of the pandemic? We absolutely have. I'm 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 pleased to say. So there were some hospitals who went to extraordinary lengths in the first wave to invite family members into hospital, even into COVID intensive cares, so that loved ones could say goodbye to their dying relative. Um, and I was, I'm lucky enough to work in a trust where that happened. So even in the first wave, whenever we judged someone to be in the last days of life, we invited a family member in, but in no sense was that replicated up and down the country. And in a great many hospitals that didn't happen. Um, I think everybody recognized very early on that that was a particularly inhumane aspect of the pandemic and it was something that had to change and very, very quickly it did. And now every hospital, every care home will invite um, at least one, sometimes two family members in if we perceive a a patient to be approaching the end of life. Uh, 
However, it's not as simple as that, e even this time round. Sometimes if, a pa if the patient is 90 and they have a 90-year-old spouse, then does that spouse risk their life and walk into a COVID-soaked environment to say goodbye to their loved ones? And, and that's heartbreaking. I've had conversations where, you know, a mum has said to me, I don't know if I can come in and say goodbye to my dying mother because my husband is on chemotherapy for his bowel cancer. So if I say goodbye to mum, will I bring the virus into the home and kill my husband? Those are the conversations we're having over the phone. You can't even look at that person as you try to have that conversation through your mask with all of the chaos around you. So it's very, very difficult. And, and the other... Uh, aspect of um, COVID-19 that makes grief and loss so intensely painful is the fact that even after someone dies, all of the public rituals and ceremonies that traditionally we use as a society to support each other in our raw grief and help each other and make sense of it and frame it, they've all been obliterated by COVID. So the infectiveness of the virus dictates the modes through which we as individuals and as a society are allowed to grieve. There are no big funerals. There are small funerals. There are funerals being conducted live on Facebook and Zoom because that's the only way to bring families together. That, that extraordinary experience of a wake where families cry and celebrate and get drunk together and end up hugging each other in a sort of emotional stupor they're not happening and and then of course even if a family member has visited their dying loved one they have to self-isolate for 10 days after that so you have a situation where somebody sits holds the hand of their spouse of 60 years goes home and they can't even have a family member going in in those 10 days. So there is, we, we talk in, in palliative care now about the shadow pandemic of complicated grief, grief that is has many psychological reasons to be difficult to resolve, particularly painful. And of course, there are over 120,000 families going through something like that at the moment. It's, it's huge unmet need. And, and I guess... What I would love to see in 2021 would be real resources, real commitment put behind addressing this shadow pandemic. There are thousands and thousands of psychologists, counsellors who, who probably have a reduced workload at the moment via Zoom. We could harness that and we could do real good. Really interesting, this conversation. When, when I first... Um, um, when, when I first knew that this conversation was about palliative care, I thought to myself, well, I'm public health, so I've got little to say about, about this. And actually, I'm just thinking now exactly what you're saying, Rachel. It's because we tend to think always in populations, um, in public health, um, not individual. And there is this big collective uh, grief, um, you know, that's happening um, to everybody. We, we, um, all over the pandemic, it's always, you know, everything's reported. Deaths has been kind of the top statistics reported, and it's always numbers and statistics. And, you know, and the narrative about that uh, have been, has been very hurtful to the families directly affected 
you know, by deaths. And we tend to look at death um, in public health as an as an outcome, as a warning. You know, you know, we need to do everything possible to prevent deaths. And actually, this pandemic and this collective, you know, over hundred thousand um, in the UK, millions in the world. Um, I think we should shift that. Um, so not only look at death as the outcome, but also as a cause for all sorts of things, you know, the grief, you know, the mental health, the what, different ways of doing things, um, different ways of shaping behaviours. So I think there's a whole big field, really, as a result of the pandemic. Um, some of us who have not experienced any of that in our professional lives in public health to, to, to look at it as a collective phenomena, but also um to not to 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 not um to, the narrative shouldn't really be numbers i mean i i, I think I, I this is a question to you as well and maybe to the others how do we how do we sensitively um approach that you know deaths every day reported um and they just become numbers and people become numb to them but actually the people are experiencing them in real life um you know hurting over and over again uh, absolutely um, I, I mean, what you've just described is 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 what we we hear so often on the wards. I've had distraught relatives who have said to me, "I don't want my dad to be tomorrow's statistics. He's not a statistic. He's a human being because they know that their father is almost certainly not going to survive the night." And therefore, he's going to end up being announced on the news tomorrow as one of the 1,200 people um, announced that day. And it, I think it strikes at something, su such an important part of our humanity that we are, each of us, a, a human being who has worth and value and who matters and who is so much more than a number and in, in in a sense the affront of being reduced to a statistic is is exaggerated by the fact that not only is the public narrative numbers of deaths statistics it's also a narrative in which we constantly hear from people who say well it's only old people and people with comorbidities who die as though somehow we can divide up British society into two categories of people, the ones who are worth saving, who, who somehow deserve to be saved, and then all those other people who are basically expendable and we can ignore them because they're old or they have comorbidities. That's a nonsense, of course. It's it, To me, it's ethically reprehensible to think in that way, but it's what people hear over and over again, both as individuals at risk of dying from COVID-19 or as family members who've lost someone. And I guess what I hope is, um, I, I think that in the same way that at, at an individual level, if someone is suddenly diagnosed with a terminal illness, they go through a traumatic experience, often of having to confront their own mortality. Uh, and that can be really difficult, particularly if they are very, very sick and their family discover they don't know what that person's wishes are around the end of their life. Well, so too, I think, in the last year, as a, as a society at a public health level, we have been forced collectively to confront death and dying like never before. And I think collectively we're almost going through um, 
as a society, the trauma and the shock and devastation that individuals often go through when they receive a terminal diagnosis. And again, the real crime would be not to learn from that, to think about how we do things differently. Um, and I think that's a challenge, but it's one that we all now in 2021 should be focusing on. Can I ask about, um, if you like, the, the grief associated with, and the loss associated with survive, surviving um, a severe illness, or as Nizreen has has drawn attention to, uh, uh, among others, uh, the long COVID patients who are grieving the life they had before they became ill, and often it's a rather invisible and lonely journey. Nizreen, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I was while this conversation was taking place, I was thinking long COVID really only eventually got recognized uh, because of the personal stories. People who are ill, um, you know, had to share so much um, of, of you know, and, and they weren't all necessarily happy to share, uh, but that they felt that was the only way to um, to to humanize the experience and to describe it and then people could pay it pay attention and 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 I and I did so as well and I did share and I wasn't really comfortable with that but I felt that was really is the only way to um you know to, but but obviously that's a different because that's your 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 sharing and you know for the for the people who die um th that's a different story um, but also even <laughs> even for long COVID, I mean, even for people maybe who, um, you know, there are people who you know, um, sh share their stories following discharge from ICU or hospital and, you know, their journey of not recovering. Um, um, but but even that uh, you have this thing about um, society demanding to know how well you were before, you know, did you have any underlying conditions, uh, how old you are. That is always the first question, and um, it, it is question. <laughs> it is questionable that this is the case. That you know your story almost only matters because you were that very fit and healthy person. I mean, I had been interrogated by some people in the media about how much exercise um, I used to do before. <laughs> uh, you know how how fit how fit was I? You know before, and I think there is this you know narrative about you know who what what we discussed you know about um i don't know i mean i don't know what the i don't want to say a, um a, a a word which is probably not accurate but it is quite concerning how how can we tackle that that kind of grading of human life whether it's for morbidity or mortality yeah so i guess i wonder if uh to some extent what underlies this this grading and uh, how much sympathy or action you deserve from other people is in fact fear and the desire to segregate society into people like me and people who are definitely not like me because if these people are not like me then I'm safe. I'm not going to die from COVID and I'm not going to get long COVID either because I'm healthy. I'm not like those vulnerable people. So it's okay. I don't need to feel frightened. And I just think in general, uh, if you're trying to understand peculiar human nature, uh, it's, a, it's a good rule of thumb to assume that people are, are frightened of something fundamentally.
Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and one of the hosts of Deep Breath In, the BMJ's podcast for GPs. Everyone's feeling the slog of this lockdown, colleagues and patients alike. In the latest episode of Deep Breath In, we delve into the data on the psychological effects of lockdown and what GPs can do to help with social isolation. We talk to Daisy Fancourt, a researcher at UCL who leads a global effort to investigate the many psychological impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. She tells us about the deleterious effect of poor public health messaging and the likely longer-term impacts for people's well-being. We also talk to Farhana Mann, a psychiatrist in North London who has been studying loneliness to get her take on why talking about loneliness is a valuable use of GP time. Deep Breath In is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this, with new episodes available every fortnight. Thanks for listening. Can I ask a bit about the impact of all of this on staff? I mean, it's it's very clear that this has been an exceptional and an extremely difficult time for doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers. Uh, for the obvious reasons, uh, but there's been this added, uh, and I think in many ways unexpected toll on staff, which has come because what turned what what was a real appreciation of what they're doing in the first wave has shifted to to this frank abuse, um, denialism, and um, really unpleasant sort of doubts about their motives. And Rachel, you've written about this, and I'd also be interested to hear whether Helen, Nizreen, and Partha have had experience of this or, or, or how it's been playing out for them. But Rachel, tell us a bit about what, what you've been seeing. Yes, well, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the, the context is a workforce that has seen a, a scale and rapidity of death that's like nothing we've ever known in, in our professional lifetime. So the sheer relentlessness of patients with the same symptoms, the same condition, dying in the same way over and over again, and, and often being cared for by staff who have been redeployed, who, who don't have experience of death and dying, and yet have been thrust into this, this environment that sometimes feels just saturated with, with death and, and with suffering. That's been unimaginably traumatic for huge numbers of staff. And Partha mentioned finding this January much tougher than the first wave last year. I, I know that I feel exactly the same. I, I, I sort of managed it first time round. And then this wave, there was something so horrible about the build-up, knowing we were going back into this again before it happened and then enduring it for the second time round already pretty battered and punch drunk from from our experiences in 2020. So that's difficult enough. And then on top of that, we've had this extraordinary layer of abuse that I think really started to build from the autumn onwards. Um, and it's clearly a very small minority of, of individuals. I, I have no doubt that the great majority of the British public are behind the NHS, they, 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 they clearly support and are very grateful to NHS staff for what they're doing. But this minority, I mean, really, you, you can't imagine the uh, vitriol that with which some of them attacked health, he, attack healthcare workers. So, so I'm pretty active on Twitter and I will get 
daily abuse. Um, I will be physically threatened. I've had death threats. I've had rape threats. I've had people say they're going to go for my children. I've been called a child abuser myself, Satan, Hitler, you name it. I've pretty much been accused of it. And all of this is simply for standing up and saying COVID is real, it's deadly. No, our hospitals aren't empty. Actually, they're filled with people dying of COVID. Please respect lockdown. Please stay at home. And it's absolutely astonishing that there's clearly a, a very nasty current of misogyny that runs through this. Um, I've, I, I, it always seems to be female doctors who bear the brunt of it, always. I, I have an in, intensive care doctor friend who was told in public that somebody was going to abuse her until she needed one of her own ventilators. This is the kind of language we're subjected to and a lot of language that I'm not going to repeat on a BMJ podcast because it's too vile. And it's devastating to come out of a long shift and look at your phone and find that on it is really tough. It's just an added layer of um, assault, really. It just feels like an assault on you as an individual and nobody likes to... um, experience a wave of hostility that's directed at you and is very nasty and very personal. I know so many doctors and nurses, colleagues who are experiencing the same and it's it's completely baffling. I can only assume that underlying it is a deliberate attempt to silence us, to try and make our lived experience go away, eradicate it uh, so that they are better able to spread misinformation to to make the public mistrustful um and it's a a, a thoroughly horrible aspect of of the the second wave uh, it's a deliberate attempt to silence you and i think many people it works i think in many people and not to blame them because why it, it's not even part of your job you know you're doing we're doing so much whether in public health or you know clinic frontline over and above in the pandemic and then you're trying to communicate things to the public and you're getting this and i think um you you get to a point where um, many points i think where you think what why why am i doing that um, particularly if you feel there's any danger that you then could expose not only to yourself but to your you know loved ones or a family so um and it's not really taken very seriously still i think um and it needs to be taken more more seriously I would fully echo the whole thing about misogyny because I'm quite active on Twitter, right? And I've had examples where I would say exactly the same thing and I would get very little pushback. I'll get some and I'll deal with it, but it's nowhere near. But that's there is a fundamental theme. And if you just, ch- if, for example, if Nisreen and Rachel just change their names and or logged in with a different account of the mail name, they will not get the same amount of abuse. There is no question about it. That is absolutely how it works. Nisreen, tell um, us, you're nodding. And, and what, 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 what do you think should be done about this, uh, Nisreen? The, the, you know, the, this isn't my, if it isn't misogyny uh, and the abuse is it's really pretty unbearable and, and completely wrong. So what, what can be done about it? I mean, I think, I think also there is, that there is an acceptance that we should accept it. <laughs> so if you want to talk about something which is within your 
field, uh, you know, of expertise, or you, and 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 you're communicating something to the public in this very tense environment of the pandemic. That then, you know, if you get these things, you just ignore ignore them. But there is this thing about well, it just comes with it. I I don't know, and that's just not that's not just the um. Um, you know, that's narrative even within the profession itself to some somewhat, I think. And I think whether how, how we can change that, because why do we need to accept it? Uh, why can't, um, you know, why can't we, uh, you know, others, um, um, you know, collective, why can't we collectively do something about it? I don't know what the others think, what we can do, but but it, it's quite it is exactly what Rachel said. It's an, an attempt to silence. And this is something that would damage society as a whole if you silence lots and you know all of these voices particularly with the lived experience of what's going on and with the expertise of um assessing what's going on it's you know to to that to the detriment of everybody and you can't blame people if they disengage because it's very intense i just wanted to pick up on some of the things about the change in public attitudes towards their NHS heroes or whatever. And there's some really quite interesting changes that we've seen um, in the vaccination clinics. I mean, the the first vaccination clinics, which we did um, in the middle of December, they're just a hugely celebratory um, and just uniformly great goodwill. And still, they're mostly like that. But there's this kind of creeping anxiety coming in there and a surprising number of people who come and stand in the queue and then argue about whether they want this vaccine. They'd really rather have the other vaccine and they're not actually very happy to be there. But yet they are there. And there's kind of (laughs) people are so worried and it it sometimes makes them behave in in really strange ways. Now, I'm not excusing that for for the people on on Twitter, but I think the whole public is now has has a has an anxiety and a frustration and a boredom and a and a kicking out and sometimes kicking out against their the, the people who are trying to help um because they don't know what else to who else to complain to um so yeah we do get a fair amount of complaints but mostly still we're getting appreciation uh i, I don't know what it's about what it is about me because um i seem to be immune to the trolls i clearly am not controversial enough ever um can we talk a bit more about this collective response i think that's a very important issue uh, and how 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 would that work partha so i think i i believe in the concept of allyship quite strongly just say what you mean by allyship partha so the issue let's take sexism right the the onus of Improving the whole issue on sexism isn't on women only. It's on all of us, right? You know, we've all got, you know, women in our lives as men who you look up to and respect. And if you do that, then you need to do what you think is right. And if that means turning up to a colleague and saying, I'm sorry, that's not on. So one very good example of that, you know, in the olden days, people would make comments about women who would come to the department, junior doctors nowadays. It's our role to go like, I'm sorry, but no. That's not acceptable. You can say that in a friendly manner to your friend. Go like, come on, guys, you know, that that's just not on. You need to do that a fair few times. And I think the collective responsibility builds from that because then you're training your other next generation to have that inculcated belief that it's not right to say that. And it is improving, but nowhere near what it should be. People are speaking more loudly about it as it should. But I keep on saying just with sexism and with racism, the onus is not on the ones who are suffering the problem. 
the onus is on the other people to sort of stand by and make it happen. And I think that's what I mean by collective ownership and leadership around it. Um, I, I think following on from what Partha says in terms of the collective response, perhaps even start with uh, all of us, you know, men and women, are noticing patterns. Um, and what I notice a lot um, in, in, um, in sort of the interactions um, in terms of health professionals' expertise is that um, if you have a woman, <laughs> there's some sort of a default uh, position, really, whether it's on Twitter or in real life or in the media, that um, if you're a man, the default position that you know what you're talking about in your area of expertise un- until proven otherwise. And there's the opposite for women, is that you um, really don't know what you're talking about until you prove that you know what you're talking about. And, th- and if we notice how people interact um, and, you know, maybe questioning, uh, uh, you know, in the media, if you have uh, two guests, a woman and a man, I really notice this a lot. The woman has to bring in so much evidence and expertise to back up what she's saying. Um, and the man could say, well, there is evidence. And then they would say, and it's not questioned, you know. Um, can we at least all notice that and then try and um, challenge it um, in our day-to-day life? That's one way of a collective response. No, no, I, I would echo that. You know, I'll give you one example. To so my Twitter person or whatever in public, when I say that, the, the normal response is, oh, isn't he, isn't he so confident, you know, so bold that he stood up against somebody? If I did that with a pseudonym or anybody, a woman did, it would be seen as being a bit of uppity, bit too much and you see that I've seen that throughout my career same person me and my fellow registrar I've seen that time and time again we would say the same thing one person would be such a bold confident medical registrar followed by such a cold and you know just arrogant registrar and you're going like I'm that weird pretty sure we said exactly the same thing so Rachel you 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 have gone very public in an article you wrote um the other day about the abuse that health professionals are getting but in particular I think what's important about the discussion we've had is acknowledging that it is um, there is a misogynist element to this very strongly um, and this idea that we as a community of healthcare professionals must speak out and not allow this to be the case what what would you see would be the most effective way of doing that well, I completely agree with Partha that the, that the way to counter this fundamentally is allyship. It is all of us as individuals and therefore collectively saying, we don't accept this. This is not something we can allow to stand. And it might take a tiny bit of effort to stand up on Twitter and say, this is wrong, this is unacceptable. But boy, is that three-second intervention worth it if everybody's doing that. It's, it, it, if everybody closes their eyes and ignores it and just says, oh, it's Twitter, it's social media, then the problem's perpetuated. I, I, I think actually what I would like to see more of is leadership in this area from the top. And by the top, I mean the chief medical officer, the chief scientific officer, the prime minister, the government, Simon Stevens, etc, etc. Because it's all fine and good for uh, me to send a supportive message to Nisreen when someone says they want to rape her and she does the same to me, but that's really not fixing the problem. What we're talking about at the extreme end of the spectrum is hate crime. This is This is hate that's being... Uh, over and over again expressed towards 
healthcare workers first of all as a group and and in, then in particular um women whether they're healthcare workers or public health um professionals uh, uh, and so on scientists as well of course and this needs to be named for what it is this is hate and it needs to be shut down and the more all of us let it slide the more it, it, it's perpetuated there was one moment um in january when simon stevens um, CEO of, of NHS England um, took part in one of the government press conferences and he was absolutely visibly and palpably furious and he he slammed this hate for what it was. He tore strips off the people who were abusing staff and claiming that hospitals were empty when actually we were doing our utmost we were on our knees caring for this onslaught of patients with covid and i was insanely filled with gratitude at that intervention it was the first time anybody with real power and profile had stood up in public and said this is disgusting and it needs to stop i haven't heard any other very powerful figure in public where the um, government or NHS or, you know, former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt has been very vocal about many things in the pandemic. He too could be a, a really powerful voice on this. Um, it, I haven't heard any of them stand up and lead on this. This is where we don't just need allyship, we need leadership and it needs to come from the top and this needs to be called out for what it is. And then it will filter down because if the top dogs do it, everyone else starts doing it. They they model themselves on what the people at the top do. It can't come from the bottom up. The people on the ground are people like me and Nizreen who are getting the abuse. So we'll do it, but it's it's tough for us. It needs to come from the top. Thanks, Rachel. That's a very powerful call for collective action and allyship, but more importantly for leadership at the highest level. I must see what the BMJ can do. If listeners want to give views or comments on this or anything else raised during the podcast, you can do this via Twitter at BMJLatest or email editorial at bmj.com. My thanks to Rachel Clark, Helen Salisbury, Nizreen Alwan and Partha Carr. Next week we'll be discussing surgery during the Covid era. Goodbye, stay safe and thanks for listening. <laughs>